All right, our scripture this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 9. We continue to go through the Gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 9. We're going to begin in verse 2 and go through verse 13. You can find it in your pew Bible on page 1004. Uh, And so if you don't have a Bible with you, you can feel free, look it up, follow along. And if you don't own a Bible, we want you to take that Bible. That is our gift to you. We believe in the power of God's word. We want you to have it and have it in your hand and have it accessible to you. Again, our scripture today is the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, beginning in verse 2. And there it reads, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there, were, and then, and there appeared to them Elijah, with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus, and Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, They no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And they were coming down the mountain, and he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. Please join me in prayer. O holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So the the scripture we we run into as we travel through Mark today is is a really impactful, important scripture along the the narrative and the understanding of Jesus. And and it's called the transfiguration of Jesus. And, And it happens up on top of this mountain, but and it's recorded in Matthew and Luke, and they give a few different details as to what goes on. Uh, but John Mark, who's the author of this gospel, his main source is Peter, if we remember that. Now, before we get too heavy into being on top of this mountain with Peter and James and John, we've got to be aware and mindful of what happened just six days ago. Not just six days ago here, but six days ago in our scripture. Because Mark jumps and skips six days. He doesn't tell us what happened. We know there was ministry. Something happened. There were conversations that went on. They did stuff. But for Mark, it doesn't play into the greater narrative of what needs to be told regarding the gospel of Jesus. And so as they are there, six days before they go up this mountain, that's when Jesus is asking those questions, right? He's saying, who do other people say that I am? They're like, oh, a prophet, oh, Elijah, or or John the Baptist. And he goes, but who do you say that I am, right? We did this last week. And it's Peter who speaks up. 
Peter with the courage, Peter with a loud mouth, Peter always sticking his foot in the mouth, however you want to go with this. But Peter, by the, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the Holy, the, the, the Son of the living God. I'll get it right. And, and Jesus praises him. And it goes on to foretell of his suffering and his rejection and his death and his resurrection. Because remember, Jesus, this, this title of Christ, they understood it in, in an earthly political power realm. Right? Because previously, it had been given to Cyrus the Great when he conquered Babylon and allowed the people of Israel to return home to build their temple. He was the Messiah. He released them from captivity, allowed them to go home to build the temple, which is the dwelling place of God, to be with God. Well, Jesus didn't come for this earthly political power. They had thoughts of grandeur that Jesus was going to come right in, build this army, defeat the Romans so that they could have the kingdom of Israel free from oppression, from rule of others. But Jesus wants to illustrate, he attempts to illustrate that with foretelling of his death and resurrection, that he came not to sling a sword to defeat the Romans, but he came to die on the cross, shedding his blood to defeat sin and death. And as Messiah, by doing so, he then allows us to return home to our Father by reconciling us through the blood of Christ. Now, this happened six days ago, but now we're getting this story. So this plays into it. Remember, Peter had rebuked him on him being, uh, having to go and die. And so Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, the sons of thunder. Those three get to go hike 10,000 feet to the top of the mountain. They're not sure if this is a good thing or a bad thing, but they get to go to the top of the mountain. And in Luke, it tells us to pray. While they're there, Jesus is transfigured. And they look up and they see Jesus shining so brightly, so white. The, the way Mark describes it, it has to be words straight from Peter. He was so white, there is no bleach on earth that could get, ever get anything that shining bright. And in Luke, we're told that his, his face was as bright and shone as much light as the sun. And so what they see with Jesus transfigured on the top of this mount is his humanity stripped away and the glory of God shining through upon them. And they get to experience this on top of the mountain. And they see there with him Moses and Elijah. How they know it's Moses and Elijah? Because they didn't have pictures hanging around the halls. There wasn't Facebook for them to check their phones and be like, I think that's him. I've seen him before. No, they, they knew, and they, and they were watching this conversation. And then Peter, doing what Peter does, he likes to talk a lot, but he admits, right? He admits they didn't know what to say. They were terrified. And so he turns to Jesus and says, Rabbi, let me build three tents, three booths right here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah so that other people can come to the top of this mountain and they know what happened here and they can worship this place of this amazing thing we just saw. Jesus said, no, none of that. But there they are, on top of the mountain. And then, it says a cloud overshadows them. 
in our ver- in the ESV. I believe it's in the NIV that it says that there was a luminous cloud. I love that, a luminous cloud. Now, that's not an ominous cloud. Us folks here in Florida, we understand ominous clouds. Sometimes they come around 3 o'clock in the afternoon, right? That short little thunderstorm, you begin to smell it, but you also see it. Or they come with a name, right? Those are the real ominous ones. Well, as a West Texas boy living in Tornado Alley, the ominous clouds, there were, there were really two kind that were ominous. One, it would show and it would begin to, to look like bubbles and it would have this greenish tint to it. That means everyone was getting a new roof because a hellstorm was coming. The other one is when they were dark and big like a wall. Tornadoes were on their way. Ominous clouds have this feature that strike fear that something destructive is about to happen. But that's not what we get told about this cloud. It's a luminous cloud. Oh, a luminous cloud. Just imagine, right? Well, we can. We live here on the beach. A a sunrise. When the sun rises and there's light clouds right in front of it, and it's almost as if the cloud itself is the bearer of the light. It's so luminous and bright. It, it, It has none of the ominous features to it like that but different right because it's not just a cloud with a light shining through it rather the luminous cloud contains the very light itself it is the light it is the glory of God shining there there is this cloud that appears bright shining above so first Peter James and John they get a hike 10,000 feet to pray And then they look up and see Jesus transfigured, shining in all of the glory of God with Moses and Elijah there. And then this amazing luminous cloud appears and out of it comes the very voice of God. This has to be ranked number one on anyone's all-time list of mountaintop experiences. What an incredible day it was. For them. But that luminous cloud, when we look at scripture, that, that cloud has meaning because the voice of God comes from it. The glory of God is shining through it. it it's known as the, the Shekinah glory. Other people have told me they've heard it Shekinah glory. My, my West Texas is going to help me here. I'm going to call it Shekinah, and we're going to live with it. But the Shekinah glory, it's, it's, this, it's the, the cloud of the presence of the glory of God. It, it's a sign of the very manifestation of God's presence amongst his people. 600 years, it hadn't been seen until that moment. 600 years, the people of Israel had gone without seeing the glory of the Lord manifest in the Shekinah glory around them. Now, before we dive too deep into this, we're going to do a little bit of some word study here. So hang with me. Uh, I promise it won't be too much like English class. It'll be more like Hebrew class, uh, so, uh, which isn't real promising. Shekinah is, trans, is, is a transliteration of the Hebrew word that means the one who dwells. So you see where this is going, right? You're like, okay, I get where you're going, Pastor. Well, there's the Hebrew word shekin, which is throughout Scripture. It's the actual word used throughout Scripture to mean to dwell, to settle down. 
to tabernacle with. Who knew tabernacle was a verb? But it is. And so it's used throughout Scripture. And so it's going to get really cool here in a moment. Now that we've done the word study and we have these meanings here, this light is about to shine. This is like an Easter egg in the story that we just found that's going to illuminate from the beginning to the end of the story found here in Scripture. Right? Because in the beginning we have that God created the earth, that the light came and the darkness could not overcome it. And then he created the heavens, the earth, he created the lands and the seas, he created the animals and the beasts and the fish of the seas, and then he created man and woman, and he said it was good. And they're there in paradise in the beginning, and God is walking with them and talking and enjoying them. It is paradise, there is no barrier, there is no sin, holding them and and building up walls in between them. fall. Sin enters the world and and they are dismissed from paradise. Dismissed from paradise, but not dismissed from God. This is an important distinction. Dismissed from paradise, but not dismissed from God. Because this Shekinah glory comes back to us and we begin to see it in scripture. The, The Israelites experience it themselves After they have been held captive in Egypt, they've been released. They cross the Red Sea. They're now in the wilderness. And in Exodus 13, 21, it tells us this of the cloud. It says, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night went before Israel in the wilderness, and it did not leave them. And and we know when we study scripture, this is God's presence. He's declaring his presence with them. And he is guiding and leading them in the wilderness. He is staying when they are to stay. And he is moving when they are to move. But never without them. And it's the manifestation of his glory, of his very presence amongst his people. And so in Exodus 25, in verses 8 and 9, Moses is there talking with God, and God gives him instructions to build the tabernacle, which is the dwelling place of God. And and God expressed his desire to dwell with his people once again. And so he says this to Moses, construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them according to all that I'm going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall construct it. And so tabernacle meaning to dwell with, and they build the tabernacle for the dwelling place, and it's the predecessor of the temple. They're in the wilderness, so this tabernacle is is movable. Shortly after this, we we see the very detailed list of how the tabernacle is to be built with its great tapestries and what is to be sewn onto them and the furniture and the specific placement of everything that goes within the tabernacle. But do you know what's on the inside? Do you know what all of that builds up to? That when you go inside the tabernacle, it is to look and recall and remember the very garden from where they started. So the garden was made in the beginning, and now God wants to come and dwell with them again. And where does he choose to dwell? He dwells in the tabernacle that is meant to look like the very garden from which he dwelt with them before. And he sits on the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies is where we find the Shekinah glory of God. And then when they're done in the wilderness and it comes time to build the temple in Jerusalem, the inside of the temple, you know what it looks like on the inside? 
the garden, the tabernacle. It is meant to recall and symbolize everything that was there in the garden because that is the resting place of God's presence. And so it was. There in the Holy of Holies, on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence rested for the very people of Israel. We know when we go to the end, to Revelation, there's a new heaven, there's a new earth, there's a new Jerusalem. You know what it looks like? The garden. With the very presence of God in it. And this is the arc of the story of God with his people throughout, never leaving them nor forsaking them. It says it throughout scripture. That he is with them, and it's the Shekinah glory of God that they get to see. But here on this mountaintop, it's, it's Peter, James, and John, and they're experiencing the transfiguration of Christ, this humanity stripped off of Jesus so they see the full divinity, that he is fully God by the glory that is shining so brightly. Nobody has ever seen it before, but these three. Remember the glory of God passed behind Moses. Nobody could see it, for it would be too great and leave them blinded. And sunburned. But here they experience the glory of God as they see Jesus. And so we have four Gospels written in our Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they read like documentaries, right? We get the story and the narrative of Jesus. And then John is different. John is mystical. John has this great symbolism in him and is deeply spiritual in a way that the others just aren't. And maybe it's because John was there on top of that mountain, right? We, we hear it in, when he writes in John chapter 1, verse 14. He says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of only the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is John who writes this, because John was up there on top of the mountain and saw the very glory of Christ shown before him. He sees that Jesus is the incarnation of God, God with us. And, and so it is that when Luke writes the birth narrative of Jesus, we are told that his name shall be Emmanuel. You know what Emmanuel means, right? What does it mean? God with us. Here's the story that God is with us throughout all of history and time, he is always with his people. And he was with us in the second of glory. And now they haven't seen the second of glory in 600 years. But on top of this mountain, they see the same light that is in the luminous cloud is also of Jesus. And that Jesus is God with them. This presence of God matters. He is with his people. So it's when Jesus says, if any shall come after me, thou shalt pick up their cross and follow me. He means in the midst of your suffering from this world that all of us will experience. Fear not, for Christ is with you from now and forevermore. The presence of God walks with you. He leads you and he guides you. And so 
Here they are, Jesus, they see this full glory, and he goes on to suffer, as he says, and be rejected like a counterfeit coin, and dying on the cross, shedding his blood for, the, for our sins so we could be made righteous before God, and being resurrected, sealing the promise above. And then he spends some time with the disciples after the resurrection. Remember, they're walking down, trying to figure out, what does this rise from the dead thing mean? So he spends some time with them, and then... Before he ascends into heaven, he tells them to wait for the Holy Spirit. And so he leaves. In the book of Acts, they tell us that he ascends into heaven on a cloud. Which leads Paul to write in 1 Thessalonians that he will return in the same way that he left. And it's the very word that we get in in Revelation that Jesus comes down in a mighty cloud. That's how he comes again, in the same way that he left, with the glory of God all around him, is what they're talking about. And so he leaves. Wait for the Holy Spirit. And so on that day of Pentecost, they're cooped up. There they are in Jerusalem. And what happens? The Holy Spirit comes. The Holy Spirit comes, and the Holy Spirit dwells within them, and they have tongues as if fire. They can speak and hear everyone that is around them, and the Holy Spirit just doesn't stay in the 12, but continues to spread and move to thousands upon thousands throughout time and history, and with what has led you here today, because the Spirit dwells within you. It's what led Paul to write in Romans chapter 8, that we can fight sin because The Spirit of God has been placed within us. That means the very glory of God that rests in the luminous cloud and the Shekinah glory that rests within Christ now lives within you. This is powerful stuff that God put his presence with his people in the garden and in the tabernacle and in the temple and then he came to us in Christ and now he lives in us. never leaving us nor forsaking us. Paul understands this because he writes it at the very end of that eighth chapter too. He says the love of Christ, we can never be separated from it, found in God. There's nothing in heaven or earth or below the earth, nor depths, nor heights, nor powers, nor principalities, nor anything in all the world that can separate us from the love of Christ found, the love of God found in Christ Jesus. So he also writes in Colossians, because we have this understanding of God dwelling, God tabernacling in our hearts. And so he writes to the Colossians that it is the light of Christ in you. It's John who writes in chapter 8 what Jesus had said as he interrupts the Pharisees and the scribes and says, I am the light of the world. Because John saw it. And that light now rested within him. And so we weren't there on top of the mountain. We didn't see the glory of the Lord shown through Christ. We didn't see the luminous crowd. But we have been given the Holy Spirit to walk and live in this life. And we have the instructions from Jesus on how to do so. Because he tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, there in chapter 5, after he gets done with the Beatitudes, and he's talking about salt for a minute, and then he talks about light. It's the key there, right? Let your light shine. 
so that your good works may point not to yourself, but to the glory of the Lord. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing that this journey we are now on, we are not doing alone and we are not following a cloud begging for God's presence to be there, but God has chosen to put his very presence within us so that in the midst of our suffering and in the midst of our joy, in the midst of our times of trials and in the midst of our great celebrations and triumphs, God is there, never leaving us nor forsaking us. So we're to go let that light shine. We're to be the light bearers to the world. That when we step outside these doors, in the days and the weeks and the months and the years ahead, we are to shine the light, the glory of God to the world through our good works. Our good works being the very good works of Christ. His love, his grace, in which all of us here today can testify to just how generous with that grace he is. With kindness and faithfulness, with gentleness, self-control. We go and we live these out and the light shines, not so that we can be superstars, not so that we can begin boasting in ourselves and make ourselves great, but so that we can point to the one who saved us and loved us when we were unlovable and say, that is our God. That is our King of Kings. He is the light of the world. Amen.